Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on November the 15th, 2015. This is part two on my talk on philanthropy, a massive subject because it's so huge really in its implications and its effect on society and the whole globe for that matter, completely tied in with the globalist movement and so on and tentacles everywhere, basically, and vast armies, vast armies of non-governmental organizations uh, that do their bidding and work for them. And they have full-time staff, of course, directing all these NGOs, who are, have incredible salaries, like CEOs of corporations, and uh, massive pension plans and live like kings and queens. So... Uh, they're used for political change and societal change for, again, those way above you in your little, you know, particular worries in your own areas and so things that you're really concerned about because most of are concerned about their, their little area or their, their country, uh, however big or small, and their own livelihood and even the continuation of their own particular species or creed of people. So uh, the big boys have different plans altogether, and they, they are bringing in, no doubt about it, the scientifically organized society run by experts, working completely hand-in-glove with everyone else in the big corporations. And uh, there's so much, so much involvement with them, you cannot dismiss them at all incredibly well organized, they all network with each other, all of the foundations, and they're all on board with the same agenda. Now I've given lots of talks over the years on the big corporations that have philanthropic organizations under their wing, and of course uh, people know the names of some of the big ones, but they don't really know the histories of these Really, these philanthropic corporations, because that's what they are. In fact, well over a hundred years ago, in fact, forever, really, you've always had small uh, groups of people getting together to help each other, altruistic uh, movements and so on, for very imminent and self-evident causes that had to be rectified or helped or alleviated in some way or another in the conditions of people's lives. But the big philanthropies have a completely different history on all of this. The big ones, they all came out again with, uh, from a movement created in England in the 1800s. And um, this organization that ran, uh, that was a movement basically, is the same organization uh, that wanted uh, an expanded empire across the whole world, a world empire. It had different names because it had to be very secretive in the way it was um, put across to the general public with front organizations and so on. But they used Oxford, of course, and they called the Oxford Movement. And that was to, to expand the British empire structural system of government across the entire globe. But they also talked about free trade and things like that and civilizing barbarians, in fact, in Africa elsewhere. Uh, that was the way that they really put it across to their followers at the time. And you had, um, I think it was Dean Ruskin at, uh, who taught this in the university there. And he influenced Cecil Rhodes, in fact. Now, the organization that ran all of them uh, eventually became known as the Lord Alfred Milner Group, uh, after Milner died, generally, uh, because th this was an incredible structural system, well-organized system, that uh, was already involved in running the British government quietly by infiltrating their members all through the government, and they'd taken it over effectively before the 1900s. And it didn't come out, really, as an organization until they changed the name to the Royal Institute for International Affairs. And there are other members across the planet that couldn't accept the word royal. They'd simply use the names like Council on Foreign Relations, things like that. And had special branches made up for Pacific relations and all the rest of it too, to integrate countries into massive trading blocks, which would standardize their economies 
and then from our economies to their legal systems until they're, they're all under the same um, block power, you might say, a super parliament that would eventually turn into a global government running them all. And it's been, it's been on the go for all this time. So when philanthropies sprung up in their wake, of course, or even quite a few put out by them, you find that uh, they naturally uh, owned them or else they took ones over that had established themselves by big corporate magnets who started them up initially. Because wherever you have a, a, a power of influence, it will be taken over by uh, the ones at the very, very top, naturally. There's no greater way to take over and direct the whole world through something that's called a charitable foundation with its hundreds of armies underneath it, uh, all mobilized to push global warming and massive taxation and you can't live on the, uh, as you used to live and all the rest of it and, and to bring it to a state of austerity. All on board with you just can't do that without some um, coordination between them all. They're all interrelated. Uh, they have, say, they have this tax-free status, and it's hard to attack them. Well, they're trying to do good, you see, and they're involved in every sphere of life, including the complete destruction of the old system of the family unit. Naturally, to bring in all the new, you must destroy the old to bring in the new. And we've all lived our lives watching the destruction of so many things that held your nation together as it, it was structured too, including the massive, um, we've watched the massive influx of immigration, forced immigration too, uh, often your tax money pay for them to come in in order to dilute the old system and get rid of your particular, let's say, race or creed or whatever it happens to be. That's all planned. Uh, long ago, and it's come to obvious fruition in your own lifetime. And it's not finished yet. So they have many, many objectives and goals, and they want a world where uh, there's only one dominant minority running the world, and they will run all uh, the hand-in-glove government-philanthropy organizations out there. And uh, that's how it is already, in fact. Uh, the Council on Foreign Relations had an article out a few years ago. I read it on the air at the time, where they said it was time for philanthropists to take up the true positions in helping to run the world, you see. So uh, it's all been done. They're out in the open now. And again, they're hidden from criticism by the, the term charitable organization. Now, no one ever challenges them as to why does a charitable organization have the right to dictate policy to governments? And why do governments, in fact, accept the pressure that the say is put upon them by these big organizations? Uh, of course, we all know the answer to that if you've followed my talks for all the years. Uh, because everything's completely interwoven today. Nothing is what it seems to be, including your governments, of course, too. In fact, we've never had such terrible propaganda about everything as we have today from all government departments across the planet. Now you have the big philanthropic organizations funding uh, special interest groups, of course, which they set up and run in the first place to do with global warming, climate change, all that kind of thing, to, and they, they create the activists and they run the armies of NGOs through universities and through society. And they also have ones for the scientists are all on board with it too. They have, again, non-governmental organizations, coalitions of concerned scientists and things like that, who, of course, claim that they want a more responsible position and helping running the world's affairs. Old idea again, a psychiatrist on board with it too, it wasn't long ago, even prior to, and in fact that's part of the reason they created psychiatry, to help run the world and make it proper, run properly, you see, and make sure only sane people would run it, and all that, they'd train the people, and they themselves obviously are sane, even though if you do studies on psychiatry and psychology, you'll find so many of the people who go into it, go into it for the old reason of physician heal thyself, they know there's something wrong with themselves. But again, that's by and the by. 
the reality is we have the, the scientific control of society, and that's what it's always been about. As I say, we're on the go towards the big global society. And, of course, you need now massive crisis to create the global society. As crisis from disease, the World Health Organization, the United Nations, a crisis from terrorists, uh, everywhere, blah, blah, blah. We can't have this kind of society anymore. We need a global structure to take care of it, a standardized system and culture for all the peoples. All that kind of stuff. And, of course, you know, too, uh, that to try and force the same system that they forced on the West for so long, on the peoples who are having the terrorist uh, organizations and running them, uh, they're going to have a lot more fallout that way because these folk are terribly ethnocentric. And the West, of course, being uh, a different kind of people, are more individualistic in their, their natures and they, they don't all just jump together uh, and congeal together. Uh, when threatened, or even even the vague threat of something, just uh, they've got all kinds of opinions on things. You don't get that with ethnocentric groups that are very rich and powerful. Many of them too. So anyway, there's much much more to this than meets the eye. I'm going to put in tonight uh, some of the again the far left stuff, only because there's one or two points they make which is kind of interesting, and and part of what they talk about is that what is philanthropy in the first place and how how do these organizations get their funding and they actually say in some of them like this one here um from a guy who worked within some of the big ones including george soros's open society institute and so on but uh, he talks about what they are and the power that they do have for sure uh, but how they get their money, and they get their money from the, the very rich, of course, who give from their income for their year a portion of that income, and which is, is tax-free for the press, for the actual donor, it's tax-free. The, the tax-free foundation they give it to receives it without paying taxes either of, on that same thing. And their point, their argument, is that um, it makes this it really is a, a tax burden on the rest of society because government uh, um, is get is losing taxes, and of course they put all the what they want from taxes onto the rest of the population, but they're losing taxes from the ultra rich. That was part of the reason they set up these philanthropic organisations in the first place. Uh, that was one part of it, of course, because the rich will never make themselves poor by helping others. There's always another angle to everything, you understand. But this one organi- this one uh, article, as I say, is left-wing. It's very left-wing, and you'll see a lot, see a lot of stuff in it which you, you can't agree with. But folk are indoctrinated. You can't really help anyway. But they do give little bits of information out, even uh, though the, the rest of the information is your, your standard far, far left, uh, total change type of way of looking at the whole world. But it's called uh, charity is great, but it won't bring real change. Now, what is real change? And again, when you hear buzzwords like change, change is good, change, Obama said change, and everybody's really uh, ruining the day that they fell for that one. Because he brought change, all right, and it was, it was nothing that anybody actually wanted. It never, it never will be. Whenever you hear a term you don't understand, ask them to break it down and explain what they mean by it. You know? <laughs> but again, people don't. They go and vote through emotion, it seems. And uh, as I say, this, art, this particular one it, it talks about how it works and how the, how the money comes in how it's spent and so on, but they don't really go into the incredible salaries that the big executives get inside the charitable foundations, because they're now part of this global governance structure, as they call it, you see. They talk about Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, of course, and they also just mention some of the, the people who run these organizations. Now, here's a little point that they don't mention, none of them do, as I say. When you get associations that you can take over because they, they're achieving so much wealth and power, it will be infiltrated and taken over quite very quickly by the most organized people. Very quickly. And that happened to all the foundations.
because look at the power they wield and the kind of money they can move back and forth or take away from certain areas uh, just on a whim and the massive effects it will eventually have, in fact immediately have, on those areas that they simply withdraw support from. The same thing goes for the big uh, investment organizations where pensions and so on are, are thrown into in a big casino. You'll find that the same organized people that took over philanthropy a long, long ago uh, also took over all of that too because they wield more power than the individual multi-billionaires who invest with them or put their money into their stocks and the rest of it because the big CEOs have more power than them. Look at all of the multi-billionaires, just one of them. They can take that money out from investments and move it somewhere else just like that on a whim. That's a lot of power. There's all kinds of governance, as they call it, that you don't realize exist. And they do. And when you get them all working on the same agenda, you know, there's, a, there's one organization running them all with their own operatives inside of it at the top. Now, getting back to this one here, um, I'll mention this article here, which is called Is Philanthropy Bad for Democracy? Because eventually the philanthropic organizations dictate the changes that they're after, and other groups, including other radical groups too, will often complain that they're being left out of it, out of the picture. So there's many, many different angles to this. And the other one too, left wing, is bargain for billionaires, why philanthropy is more about public relations than progress. Again, it's progress. Who, de- who determines what progress? You've got to understand, pro- you never take anything at its face value. Look, ask, ask what they're talking about when they're talking about what do they envisage as progress. It's quite simple. It's easy to do. Anyway, it says charity is great, but it won't bring real change. At worst, it perpetuates the myth that we need the ultra-rich. There's many ways that the, the far left who use all these organizations and often work for them see, see how they're being run as well. But just think of the planet's best human being. Who are you thinking of? Pope Francis, your parents, Justin Bieber. According to the Business Insider, it's Mark Zuckerberg because he's planning to donate $1 billion, less than 5% of his massive fortune, to charity. Now, you find these organizations, these big foundations, part of the deal that they have with these massive trusts that they are, because that's really what they are, is that they only have to give 5% of what gets into them, and much they have, to supposedly the causes that they're set up to do, the charitable causes. 5%, that's all. It says, well, it's certainly welcome. Philanthropy is far more insidious than it appears at first sight. It tends to lead to fawning press coverage, but little in the way of good reform. Worse, it perpetuates the myth that the society's problems can be solved by the rich and powerful. It says, there's a very real sense in which it would be hard for Zuckerberg to have done less for the poor. After all, he and his rich Silicon Valley friends regularly use their wealth to lobby for policies that would make them even richer even if in the guise of social responsibility. Uh, this is Chris Rock notes, behind every great fortune is a great crime, and behind Zuckerberg's wealth there's a relentless monetization of privacy, or more accurately, the lack thereof. Now, I've always said that these characters they give you, and especially in more recent history, the last couple hundred years, basically, are really frontmen for one big organization. And they're made famous with a lot of nonsense behind them, of just rags to riches type of thing. Oh, they're just a natural genius. And we swallow that rubbish because we like it. It's like, a, it's like a, some kind of Hollywood story, you see. But um, what was the real goal of all? The goal was always to take away your privacy and, and uh, make sure that this kind of government, the one above the one that you have that works for it, it knows all about you constantly in real time updated daily, knowing everything you're doing, because one global powerful group can only rest in peace when they have total control over everything and have complete knowledge of all of your business and what you're up to at all times of the day, you see. Only then can they relax.
but it's his casting so ubiquitous uh, flattery is nothing like the unctuous adoration festooned by Matthew Bishop Michael Green in her book Philanthro Capitalism, which bears the Orwellian subheader How the Rich Can Save the World. The authors write approvingly that today's philanthro capitalists see a world full of big problems that they, perhaps only they, can and must put right. Maybe, but there could also be a more insidious motive. And then they go on to H.L. Mencken, who said the urge to save humanity is almost always a false front for the urge to rule. And that's very true. That's true. Power is what all messiahs really seek, not the chance to serve. While some philanthropists support good causes like Bloomberg's fight against big tobacco, other pet causes are not so humanitarian. While we may applaud the work of Bill Gates, many philanthropic capitalists like the Adelsons and the Kochs have decided their philanthropic venture will be empowering the Ted Cruises of the world to wreak havoc. Wealth is power, and concentrated wealth is concentrated power. The most benevolent inventions are also the cruelest. And it goes on and on and on. It's a racket, but it's also a a great cover for one powerful group. A very old group. As I say, it goes back, and you can even trace it, popping its head up down through history, but into definitely with the Lord Alfred Milner group, uh, where even Winston Churchill bombasted it uh, when he found out that policy wasn't getting made by the government that he was working for, but, but, but the Lord Alfred Milner group. They didn't even have that title at the time. They had different titles so that folk would never catch on to who they actually were. But they were well organized. They caused the South African War, the Boer War, and they, they were behind the, the movement to educate the general public through fiction and everything else and, and all the news which they owned at the time, uh, or that they would build up a war for a world war uh, with Germany as their main opponent. That was World War One, and they actually did it. So that's how the world is truly run. Also, this article here is, is philanthropy bad for democracy, and it'll give you the, the idea of uh, the kind of money they, they rake in. And mind you, too, the money that they get in, too, in order to pay 5% out for taxes, they're allowed to invest again, too, until there were trillions, actually, some of them. And this article, Plutocrats at Work, How Big Philanthropy Undermines Democracy. And this is... Um, it gives you the false story of it. The big philanthropy was born in the U.S. in the early 20th century. It was born in London. This is the Russell Sage Foundation received its charter in 1907, the Carnegie Corporation in 1911, and the Rockefeller Foundation in 1913. By the way, I'll also put a link up tonight uh, to do with the Rockefeller Foundation. Uh, and it tells you, and it's, uh, and it's that the, and it's from the. Remember, too, I've mentioned talks. Go into the archive session. Remember, I always use it at cuttingthroughthematrix.com. I gave uh, lots of talks on the big foundations years ago, and their complete involvement with the CIA. Now, the CIA is not what anyone thinks it is. It's not there for what the Americans will consider their personal health or their salvation and keeping things strong for you inside the country with the way you identify yourself with the country. They've got a completely different agenda. And uh, as I say, I'll mention, I'll put a link up uh, tonight to to show you at least what came out from the Rees Commission done an awful long time ago uh, when uh, the, the U.S. Congress put Norman Dodds uh, out there to find out why these foundations were supporting what it seemed to be at the time, not just left-wing causes, but revolutionary communist causes. And you should be asking that. But you'll find, too, in this this link I'll put up, that the CIA were heavily involved with uh, the Rockefeller Foundation. But they did the same with all the foundations. The CIA, to me, is like a private corporation. That's how I see it. It's, it's so secretive uh, that uh, it literally is a um, an agenda-driven, well-organized agenda-driven organization. Uh, it's a law unto itself, and it it doesn't. It's not trying to keep the the, the kind of old um, 
John Boy Walton, Story Alive, is completely globalist in its intentions for power and massive change. But this uh, article says there were strange new creatures, quite unlike traditional charities, these foundations, that vastly greater assets and were structured legally and financially to last forever. And that's why they can get their jobs done. Some of the foundations had particular goals when they set out to turn everything upside down. I mean everything, folks. The way you could relate to each other, the way you'd be educated or indoctrinated and so on, what you'd believe, what you wouldn't believe. I say the destruction of the family units and various other things too. All of that. Uh, uh, so anyway, it says that vastly greater assets and more structured legal infrastructure to last forever. They could get the jobs done, their goals done. They could, over generations of, of hiring new CEOs, retiring others, and they could always work towards the same goals. We, in our own little limited lifestyle, uh, will change our minds umpteen different times on particular things through experience of living your one little life, your short life. And you might have a completely different view by the time you're your 60s, you, you did it when you were 18 or 20. Uh, but foundations, no, they can, they can achieve their transitions, as I like to call it, that mean their goals for change. Planned, planned, orchestrated, instituted change. And it says... They were affiliated with no religious denomination and adopted grand open-ended missions along the lines of, uh, such as to improve the human condition. Again, when you hear terms like that, you must remember, what, it's not a, it sounds so simple. And you'll, you'll put upon that term, you'll, you'll transfer upon it what you think that means, rather than ask them what they mean by that. They were launched in essence as immense tax-exempt private corporations uh, dealing in supposed good works, but they would do a good according to their own lights and they would intervene in public life with no accountability to the public. From the start, the mega-foundations provoked hostility across the political spectrum. There are many detractors, or to their many detractors, they look like centres of plutocratic power threatened democratic governance. I would say that's an old argument because the, the, the whole thing now is so interwoven with government or governance as you think about it. They can't tell the difference. Setting up uh, do-good corporations, critics said, was merely a ploy to secure the wealth and clean up the reputations of business moguls who amassed fortunes during the Gilded Age. Consider the reaction of John D. Rockefeller's initial request for a charter from the U.S. Senate. He eventually received one from New York State. It says, in spite of his close ties to big business, progressive presidential candidate Theodore Roosevelt opposed the effort, claiming uh, that uh, no amount of charity in spending such fortunes as Rockefeller's can compensate in any way for the misconduct in acquiring them. The conservative Republican candidate William Howard Taft denounced the effort as a bill to incorporate Mr. Rockefeller Samuel Gompers, president of the American Federation of Labor, <laughs> quite a story to that guy too, sneered that the one thing that the world would gratefully accept from Mr. Rockefeller now would be the establishment of a great endowment of research and education to help other people see in time how they can keep from being like him. And that little piece was from Peter Dobkin Hall, a historical overview of philanthropy, voluntary associations and non-profit organizations in the U.S., since the social policy ideas of the new foundations were shaped by their understanding of modern research-based medicine, especially germ theory. Now, you probably know that the Rockefeller Foundation literally created the AMA, American Medical Association, and uh, the big organizations uh, such as themselves still run it today. They decide what treatments you're going to get. They have their own uh, particular far, um, uh, vaccine centers and so on. And they to tell government, use these and use that, and use these medications. And they even helped design what uh, uh, the, the whole curriculum for the for uh, inductees into medicine and so on, who just become more drug pushers for the big farmers and so on. And it says here that... Um, 100 years later, big philanthropy still aims to solve the world's problems with foundation trustees deciding what is a problem and how to fix it. They may act with good intentions, but they define good. 
The arrangement remains uh, thoroughly bureaucratic. It's exercise of wealth-derived power in the public sphere with minimal democratic controls and civic obligations. Controls and obligations include uh, filing an annual IRS form. Uh, They they don't have to do that since 1969. Paying an annual excise tax of up to 2% on net investment income. Uh, There are regulations against self-dealing lobbying, although uh, educating lawmakers is illegal. I would say re-educating them and supporting candidates for public office. Well, they all do that. They all, they all do that, folks, through the, the, the guys who donate to them. They're donors. Also, the big corporations uh, put their own, your politicians in. And the, the big corporations own the philanthropic organizations. It's all completely intertwined, you understand, naturally. And then Article 2 from Left Wing again is um, the importance of criticizing philanthropy. Uh, last month, readers of the Chronicle of Philanthropy, a trade journal of the non-profit world, were treated to a memorable op-ed. It was written by John Arnold, 40-year-old uh, former Enron natural gas trader and hedge fund funder, who with his wife ranked third on the 2013 list of the nation's most generous benefactors. Attacks and vitriol will not deter me from supporting fixes to public policy, the piece's headline announced. And it went on to document the intensely personal public attacks Arnold has endured in retaliation for his contributions to the causes of education, criminal justice and pension reform. He was falsely charged with attempting to make his donations surreptitiously, he claimed, and had been the target of selective reporting regarding his partisan sympathies, smeared, for instance, as a right-wing ideologue, without a mention of the fact that he raised money for Obama and he's been subjected to a steady stream of juvenile insults. One critic quipped that he had a jug-eared face of a Division Three women's basketball coach. That last one evidently stung. These days we've grown used to billionaires sticking claims to victimhood. Witness, for instance, the venture capitalist Tom Perkins comparing the media's focus on income inequality to the Nazis' perpetration of uh, Kristallnacht. But such laments tend to invoke, uh, involve the makers grousing about their rough treatment at the hands of takers. Arnold's op-ed aired a different grievance. He spoke not as an accumulator of a fortune, but as a redistributor of one. This was a defiant uh, cry de coeur of uh, a cri de coeur of the persecuted philanthropist. It's always a bit uncomfortable to see a private citizen taking his knocks in the public square. We probably shouldn't take much pleasure in a spectacle. Yet in the midst of his latest Gilded Age, or this latest Gilded Age, as the prerogatives of concentrated wealth marched onwards with little resistance, an aggressive, even at times antagonistic, engagement between the public and their benefactors shouldn't be considered a mark of, in, of incivility. It should be considered a democratic imperative. Then they go through the Rockefeller and different ones and so on. By the way, I think, um, yeah, the Rockefeller Foundation uh, took the Ford Foundation under its wing as well. So now, they, you know, they're just like, just like corporations almost do, they have takeovers and bring all their cash into as well too and so on. As I say, I mean, if you want a career, going to want to be a CEO of a, of a philanthropic organization, you'll have the same income as the, the top CEOs of big oil companies on them, you know. It's not bad at all, eh? And you'd be very rich and very powerful with the kind of power that you can sway. Which means the general public. Now, here's an article, too, to show you how these big so-called philanthropists are changing the world. And there's much more behind the ones who are doing this particular kind of change than you can imagine and that's all you're left to do because of laws and so is, is to imagine why. But it says Victor Orban slams George Soros again and says the well-funded activists are causing the migrant crisis. Firebrand Hungarian Prime Minister Victor Orban has for the second time during Europe's migrant crisis lashed out at billionaire George Soros, who he says is responsible for the continent-wide epidemic. Mr. Orban was interviewed in Hungarian media this morning. He blames Alexis Soros, a massive funder of pro-migration groups across the world, for attracting what he described as an invasion of migrants to the continent, reports Der Spiegel. 
He said the invasion is, is driven on the one hand by people smugglers and the other hand by those human rights activists who support everything that weakens the nation state. And there's a reason for that, folks. There's even some of the people who uh, know and work with Soros too, have a lot in common with Soros, uh, an awful lot in common with Soros, who want to, have actually said they want to basically destroy the, the homogeneity uh, the, the, the European cultures, even the one in Sweden, said the same kind of thing, who came from another country altogether, and has using um, her fellows to do the same things in Sweden. But it says the Western mindset in this activist network is perhaps best represented by George Soros. He uses his billions to promote his worldview in over a hundred countries. He funds a global network of foundations. Uh, initiatives, projects and partners to promote his particular vision of an enlarged European Union and a world with no borders. It's completely different European visages altogether, folks. This is Breitbart London, previously reported he believes groups funded by Mr. Soros are drawing a living from the immigration crisis. His open society foundations, which provide endless streams of pro-migration talking heads for news outlets, are a case in point. The Open Society Institute, Budapest, has helped activists working with migrants on issues affecting the safety and well-being of migrants, refugees and asylum seekers. Despite the return to relative peace and stability seen in Hungary following decisions taken by Mr. Orban, it's repeatedly condemned his government's rhetoric and the sealing of borders to migrants, the OSF website explains. And they tell you what the blowback from these NGOs are and so on, why they should just be able to deal with borders and bring everybody in and so on. It says, as far as Mr. Orban is concerned, migration policy is in fact being driven by what he calls America's naked national and imperial interests. In the past, he's also identified financial self-interest as a motive of Western groups promoting migration. There's much more to it than that. that, that, that Mr. Orban obviously here doesn't know or he can't say. Uh, as to all of this uh, that's running the world. Much, much more. But, uh, you know, I've, I've talked about Mr. Soros before and his history, of course, which is rather despicable, if, if not <laughs> criminal. And uh, the man who came into London when he was young, uh, as a kind of refugee and supposedly penniless, was fed by the British taxpayer and put into, uh, picked up and put in by his friends into, uh, I think, London School of Economics, and even raised a grant from the local folk to, to pay for him and all the rest of it, so that he could eventually destroy Britain, which he did, actually, by getting two of his pals together, two invest, massive investors, and the three of them uh, basically destroyed <laughs> the British uh, currency until Britain had to go back to the same people to borrow money to prop up their pounds and so on. I'm so so under so devalued after that. This is, this is the rat. He's a rat. This man, obviously, uh, that's his way of thanking the British people for you know helping him uh, get ahead, etc. Quite, quite something, folks, isn't it? And this is a philanthropist. You think he's doing this for all, all, all that he's up to is for good intentions. He really cares about other people. No, this is a war tactic. It's a war tactic, folks. And also, I'll put up uh, this art, this particular site to an open society foundations uh, that uh, supposedly uh, Soros owns and so on. And all the other organizations that Soros works with as well. You're looking at super government here, folks. And I'll put in the Ford Foundation as well for those who want to have a little look-see at the CIA's involvement with so much of this too. As I say, I've always looked upon the CIA as an alien group, really, because they're certainly not American and don't have the interests of what I look upon as Americans at heart. Definitely not at all. Uh, and it's so convoluted, the, the webs that they weave, in fact, it's very hard to follow them at times to find out what their particular goals are. But it's a nightmare getting through it all. But you can actually find they have particular goals, which are not in the interests of uh, Mr. and Mrs. America. Now, there are some much bigger players who pop out once in a while to the media or the general public. Sometimes they just simply publish books and so on. 
and they, they keep fairly quiet their role up till now in society. But I've mentioned before Jacques Attali. He was in France, of course. He was the, the, the top advisor to different French presidents for years, including President Mitterrand, who was a, a worldwide uh, socialist. Who uh, I think even his coffin he had the red, single red rose placed upon it to his funeral. But he was uh, unabashedly uh, promoting the whole real socialist agenda, not the one that the general working guy thinks that socialism is. And Jacques Attali was the, the, the top advisor. But when people came to see um, even Mitterrand, uh, that he go through Attali, he was like the guard of the door, you might say, the gatekeeper, uh, of who, who would see, who he wouldn't see. He was had more power, you might say, than Mitterrand himself. I've always said advisors are far more important than the front men they put in as presidents and prime ministers. And because they really know the agenda, and it's much more a connection between advisors in different countries than meets the eye if you just do a little bit of homework. But uh, Jackson Talley uh, uh, has he, he is often thought of as a futurist, but he's not really. He's simply one of the the guys in on the top planning for society. And uh, I'm going to do a little critique of uh, his book I mentioned before. His book. A Brief History of the Future. Henry Kissinger loves him, and all, you know, all the same people as always uh, love uh, Jack Satali. I think he even, I saw in an article a few years ago where he and others in France were up in a charge for international arms smuggling, this great guy who was very much uh, an altruist of society. There's always more to them than meets the eye. Anyway, I critiqued the book, and um, just for educational purposes, and in the book, A Brief History of the Future, he talks about uh, the vanguard of hyper-democracy, they call it, uh, transhumans and relational enterprises. He says, when a convoy is on the move, its vanguard includes many more than the generals lolling in the midst of the troops. History bifurcates only when adventurous beings concerned with their freedom and the defense of their values advance the cause of men generally to their own great regrets. In the American tell order, this vanguard has until now been composed uh, core by core, as we have seen, he calls them cores at different ages of civilization, of what I've called the innovative class, entrepreneurs, inventors, artists, financiers, political leaders. In the future, part of the class, individuals particularly sensitive to the question of the future, will realize their happiness depends on that of others, that the human species can only survive united and uh, pacific, I mean pacified. They will cease to belong to the mercantile innovative class and refuse to put themselves at the service of pirates. They'll become what I call transhumans. So they're, they've already gone past humanistic and the transhumans. You see. Altruistic. They're just, see, they're all there because they just love you all. That's what you're taught, which is nonsense. Anyway, uh, altruistic, conscious of the history of the future, concerned by the fate of their contemporaries and their descendants, anxious to help to understand, to leave behind them a better world, transhumans will reject the selfishness of the hyper-nomads and the destructive fury of the pirates. They will not believe that they own the world merely recognizing they only hold it in trust. See, they hold the trust, all these big philanthropies and so on. Uh, they hold it in trust for all of us. You understand this? This can't help doing good. And it says here, they were ready to put into practice the virtues of the sedentary, such as vigilance, hospitality, a sense of the long term, and those of the nomads, ostensibly, memory, and uh, intuition. They'll feel at once citizens of the world and members of several communities. Their nationalities will be those of the languages they speak and no longer simply of the countries where they will live. For them, rebellion against unavoidable will be the rule. The insolence of optimism will be their moral standard uh, and brotherhood will suffice for ambition. They will find their happiness and the pleasure of giving pleasure. That's really why they do all. Uh, <laughs> particularly to children they know they are responsible for. I guess we are the children, maybe. They will learn again that transmission is peculiar to man. 
women will become transhumans more easily than men. What well, they've always said in all the, the studies and behaviors and so on, they can always use women to push any agenda because they're more adaptable. They can be persuaded more easily than the men are, you see. And they've been doing that for years through Bernays. You can see what he helped women become. And them start smoking and drinking and all the rest of it. In a way, uh, this goes on to see the progressive rise of women in every dimension of the economy and society, particularly through microfinance, will add enormously to the, to the number of transhumans. And he mentions some of the uh, today's transhumans. He says we might cite both Melinda Gates and Mother Teresa. Imagine putting Melinda Gates and Mother Teresa in the same, <laughs> same boat there. We will also find among them billionaires who have entrusted the bulk of their fortunes to a foundation as well as social innovators, teachers, creators, religious and secular women, and quite simply people of a goodwill, people for whom the other is a value in himself. Well, in the world of scarcity, in other words, in the market, the other is a rival, the enemy come to quarrel over scarce goods, the one against whom freedom is built and with whom no knowledge must be shared. For in transhumans, the other will be first and foremost the, the witness of his own existence, the way of verifying that he is not alone. The others will allow him to talk and transmit and prove generous, loving, outstripping himself, creating more than will satisfy his own needs and so on. Anyway, he, he talks on and on and on. And other parts of the book too, he, he lumps in uh, all the other big NGO leaders and all the top uh, uh, Trust funds and so on. Well, like, trust funds are the ones I'm talking about, of course, too, are the tax free foundations that bring it all to being and the guys who give you the internet and all the names you're used to that are taking all your rights away. So they're all part of it, including Red Cross, um, Doctors Without Borders, Care, Greenpeace, the World Wildlife Fund, the guys who want you to basically go into utter austerity and reduce your population. And above all, many other non governmental organizations across the world and so on. So, it could be a wonderful world as you're all run by someone who basically tells you you're being run by them now, <laughs> as far as I can see. Uh, these wonderful philanthropists that really, they just live to help you. Not to get rich and, and live the rich lifestyle and so on, but uh, and to get their own corporations you know, where they, they manufacture things that will have the government push on you, like vaccines. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they do it all because they love you, you understand. Do you realize that's, that's why they, they, they went out to accumulate all that wealth in the first place? Do you understand that? Just, it's something that happens to you. Like, like you see the light, do you understand? It's like, it's like, a religious experience where one day he just says, here I am sitting here and I'm a multi-billionaire and, uh, and bingo, whang, it just hits you. You didn't do it for greed and to beat the other guy and to think you're a winner and your ego and all the rest of it. No, you did it to help everybody. It just hits you like that. You see, isn't it? God works in mysterious ways indeed, doesn't he? <laughs> I'm telling you, well, it isn't just the truth that's the hardest thing to find in not just all years of civilization and getting worse all the time. It isn't just, it's complete, it's any kind of reality. Because we, we, you can't get reality unless you get the, the complete truth on any particular one thing and everything. And you ain't going to get it, folks, because there's better minds than you, supposedly. They're really out to help you. Uh, they decide what you're going to believe and how you're going to behave and, and all the rest, including even if your society uh, or even your nation exists tomorrow or not. And you don't vote any of them in. So I don't quite know why you bother voting at all, because all the politicians know that what I'm talking about is the truth. It's just a sham to keep you voting right now, as far as I can see. They're all on board with all the big agenda. Oh, climate change, global warming, it's man-made, blah, it's all your fault. With attachment to austerity and, and reconfigurate the complete way of living from birth to death, even if you should be born. Because if they don't need you in something, you just add to the overpopulation problem. Etc, etc, etc. The scientifically designed society that I've talked about for years and years and years and years. And 
what can you say, punks? What can you say? So there you are. Not only are people going into transhumanism, but we already have transhumans. The people who had that special light from the heavens or wherever it came from just hit them and say, you are going to benefit all of humanity and you have a role in directing all of humanity's way of living from now to eternity. And no decision shall be made without your approval. The last I heard, Italy was working in the United Nations, of course, naturally. And um, I don't know if he still is or not. I'm sure he will be, because they, all have, they always keep their hand in the same thing, and no matter what they seem to get moved around to. And uh, God knows how the arms charge went, that, that trial was upcoming. Or even if they, <laughs> they paid him off well enough, that they never went to trial. Who knows? But it was in the papers a few years ago. I'll also put up tonight a link to an old Gilbert and Sullivan comic opera song from the 1800s on philanthropy and philanthropists. And it's from the Princess Ida opera. But it's quite funny, actually, the way it's put across to the to the general public. And satire really is the only thing you're left with today. And even satire can get risky today because... Um, because, as you can see, everything's becoming more and more and more intolerant regarding free speech. We've been trained for years, and thank goodness again others have picked up on what we mean, but for years, the scientific socialism indoctrination that we have is so perfect with Pavlovian responses instilled into us and all the prompts we've had, etc., and the techniques of making you conform to the basic peer pressure of those who are the easiest to conform and indoctrinate. That's what, how it's done, even through school onwards. And they teach you that certain just terms are bad to even inquire into, or certain things are bad or wrong or racist or something just to look into, uh, or you're a Nazi or whatever it happens to be, when you just look into things. And if having a human mind, you're supposed to be naturally inquisitive. When you're being banned banned for inquiring into anything, there's a good reason for the subject being banned that they don't want you to know about, folks. Basic to detective work is to look at, for instance, detective work with, with the terrorism has always been basic detective work of all kinds, same thing. You find out what the intended crime is to be or has been and, and more to come. Who's doing it? What do they have in common? And you don't leave anything out. If there's something in common that's consistent, then you better grab that incredible evidence you got. But you're not allowed to today. And it's amazing because the government agencies... And you have to, again, it's like the CIA, you wonder, are they even your own government's agencies? I don't see, there's a few agencies there that are just one, as far as I can see, and they're international. And they want to know all about your cluster of friends on Facebook, and your cluster of friends, and your emails, and all the different things that you're into. It's okay for them to be detectives, and to find out why you like so-and-so in this little group, and, and you like each one in that little group. What do you have in common? But don't you ever do that, folks. When you look around to see who's doing what to all of you. And that's a sad story of the world, isn't it, today? You see, truth is the hardest thing to ever get a hold of, and you can't get reality unless you have complete truth or access to as much as possibly known as is possible. Otherwise, you come to a false impression at the end of it all, whatever the topic happens to be. Today, you're guided towards the conclusion that they want you to have. It's been away for years now. Now, remember, too, folks, that I depend upon you to help me take along 
because I've helped other folk get rich before, but not myself. I just want to take along here. I should mention, too, that those who have seen videos up on YouTube and so on of me uh, giving talks, especially one in particular, done next to your lake, that wasn't my house. That was uh, really uh, rented by the crew and the whole thing uh, to do the documentary. And I, I couldn't afford that place. And that was in Sudbury, and I don't live in Sudbury. And... Uh, and it's an interesting story to even that particular house. Just a coincidence, really. But uh, someone at the university apparently owns it, and uh, it's an appointed position at the university. And uh, he gets a lot of grants and everything else too, right down to I think too, to the reinsulating for global, you know, or for thermal loss and all the rest of us. It's stuff that we can afford, you know. Everything's ironical, isn't it, in this day and age? And you're already socialist because to get ahead in life, if you're not going into the big uh, philanthropic organizations that are simply part of the, of the socio-political structure system, the super one, uh, then you have to work in some kind of government agency or something to get a pension for, for life and to have a steady career. Otherwise, being Joe public average today is terribly scary. And for many, it's impossible. Because they can't make ends meet And same with me too So if you can uh, For all the folk that have Even the universities too That have used my stuff all the time uh, It'd be nice to, have to see a, a, a few bucks sent my way once in a while And you can always donate, donate to me At cuttingthroughmatrix.com Because it's really appreciated And uh, I've got a lot more I'd like to do uh, and put out an awful lot more in the future if it's possible. But it would be helpful to me just to get by, and I mean just tick along here, if you can just spend a few bucks once in a while as you're going through all this stuff for free and help me keep going. And you can also buy the books and discs at cuttingthroughmatrix.com and hopefully that'll help me survive. But as I say, there's an awful lot more, awful lot more, folks, to society than you'd ever, ever suspect. This superstructure system across the whole planet. And it's very old, well-organized, and though there's many names for different branches of it, it's all the one. It's all the one. Kind of sad to think that your grandparents and your parents and yourself, you've all been born into it and directed along a particular path, uh, a pre-planned path, which even involved uh, collapses and depressions and economic, uh, near economic collapses, all scheduled years in advance for big changes, you see. And you'll have another one coming not too long after they sign the, the big treaty this month, the COP21, which ties in the whole thing with Agenda 21 and sustainability and all that kind of stuff. A complete new way of living. It's all part of this COP21 and Agenda 21 Millennium Project. Many names for the same thing because there's no, there's no aspect of human life that it does not encompass and it's not heavily involved in. All started up again by philanthropic organizations, supposedly, and um, Canada's even own more is strong. The Biodiversity Treaty and... And so on and so on. This goes on and on and on and on and on. You didn't vote for any of this. Not at all. Anyway, as I say, uh, help me take a long by occasionally. And remember, too, you don't send a lot of cash. Just send whoever you can afford once in a while. Because it would add up if enough folk did it. And where I am now, uh, I might just get through the winter with the heat. It all depend. And uh, the winters now are getting worse and worse and worse as we go into global warming, you see, getting colder and colder. But uh, that's the way it is, you know. Fantasy works awfully well, and incessant propaganda works incredibly well. It's just the creation of a new religion, you see. It's worked awfully well. It was planned that way, too. I've read all the guys who helped set up the whole agenda regarding the climate change before from uh, even the this early 70s and prior to that onwards, how they would work it into society's consciousness and belief system. So from Hamish, myself, Ontario, Canada, 
is good night. And may your God, your gods, go with you.